Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program exploring all the high-stakes, speed bumps, and off-ramps of driving to the top of your market. It all starts right now. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Corey Frank of UncommonPro.com and Chris Beale of Connect and Sell. I know many veteran entrepreneurs would agree that raising venture capital is the easiest thing that a startup founder is probably ever going to do. Uh, Mark Andreessen said that the venture capital business is a 100% game of outliers. It's all about extreme exceptions. Think about it. There are on the order of four to 5,000 fundable companies a year that all want to raise venture capital. And about 300 of those will get funded by what's considered a top tier VC. And about 25 of those will someday get to a $100 million plus level in revenue. And of those, 25 from that year will generate something on the order of 97% of all the returns for the entire category of venture capital in that year. So in this episode, I asked Chris to tackle the mindset around this venture capital seduction process and break it down with eyes fully wide open to its true purpose and function. Who should you have on your team to really give you the brutally honest feedback that you need before the VC enters the picture? And most importantly, how can you ensure that your VC's goals and your goals are properly in alignment? This is the hard truths about taking VC funding. I just find that the the early entrepreneurs, especially if they go into a traditional VC, they're not getting that be true to the process Maybe a Vista Ventures with their book seems to have that template mm-hmm. on the process. And I think a lot of a lot of VCs and financial institutions are following that model from that PE firm. But the vast majority, they, they're not clinging or adhering to maybe financial process controls, right. but nothing, nothing outside the realm of doing what you're talking about, which is validating, vetting the customer persona profile finding the three pieces of information, trying to get it done in quick cycles, not 500 days, not 50 days, but trying to get it done in, in a couple of weeks to then rinse, lather, repeat. So where where is that disconnect where they just, they're um, unaware that that is helpful? It seems, it seems contrarian to how a traditional VC operates, giving guidance to an entrepreneur today. It's actually competitive with how a traditional VC operates which is why you don't see VCs encouraging it. Because the VC is actually interested in putting money to work and then maybe having a win and having high salvage value on the losses. So the three things you've got to do as a VC is you've got to fund with too much money. You have to put the money to work. 
So that means you want to invest in companies that need more money later. You certainly don't want to invest in the ones that don't need more money, right? Because you have this other problem. I mean, if you were running a venture firm that, that had a very small fund or sort of an on-demand fund with limiteds that were quite happy to have their money not invested unless it's going to be a win, right? then you might run a, a process that emphasizes early on making sure that we have a product before we build the product. I mean, a VC that, that focused on that would actually just have to restructure their portfolio to say, we're always going to win, but we're never going to own as much because we don't get to put as much money to work. But we're, we'll be happy doing that. We'll end up owning, you know, 8.7% instead of 87%, but we're going to win 100% of the time. Yeah. And we're still going to have the same unicorn ratios, so to speak. We'll still have the same big home run ratios. But instead of salvage value, we're going to eliminate salvage entirely and always build companies that work. It's actually impossible to build a company that doesn't work if you go through the initial process of making sure that somebody wants your product and will buy enough of it to cover the cost of developing the darn thing and taking it to market. That's a working company 100% of the time. It may not be huge already, but you can actually repeat the process over and over. You can say, hey, wait. Now we're in this market with this product. Let's find out if this product described a little bit differently with this message can go into this adjacent market. Now, instead of one big monster market, I can go take market after market after market. That's why the series uh, that I've been doing on LinkedIn is called Market Dominance. It's not dominance of imaginary TAMs. It's dominance of actual markets reduced to lists. When you reduce a market to a list, you have a shot at understanding what it would take to solve a problem for enough folks in that list for enough money that it covers your cost of building the product in the market, the cost of going to market and the cost of supporting the product. And you can do that 100% of the time because the, here's what's funny about this whole situation. What comes out of discovery is completely reliable. In a discovery meeting, if you run a discovery meeting with the correct fidelity, it's like a, a super MRI machine. It's like a CAT scan from, from heaven. It tells you who needs what. And if you choose to be so bold as to ask what they will pay for. And you can even discover through implementations. Now, you can't discover this in discovery. Through your first five implementations, you can even figure out what does it take to make it work in the real world. Can you do five implementations before you take money? Probably. After all, VCs don't fund the build of products anymore. They expect you to build the product in the garage because they're so easy. So now really, what is the VC funding? They're funding a go-to-market of a product that they don't know if it has a fit in the market. And that's the VC's risk profile, which is where all the problems come from. The, the root cause of all of this is building products that don't have a place, a known place in the market. To yeah. solve a known problem for a known person who's within a company. So it solves them for their problem, who knows how to buy it. You know, it's the unknown. You started this out, this, this question. You asked the great question, which is what are the unknown unknowns? The unknown unknowns are, does anybody need what it is that we're thinking about building? What would they pay for it? What would it take to implement it in the field? What other elements of the ecosystem must be brought to heel? That is how... Do you have service providers? Do you have integrations that have to be done? Is there training that's needed? Our product's a great example. We need to train people on how to hold great cold calls. 
because what's the point of having 10 times as many conversations if you suck? So our product naturally in its natural way, if you just unleash it like a coyote into the wilds, it doesn't behave like a domestic dog. It behaves like a damn coyote. You have to train the thing to sit, lie down, roll over, you know, don't pee on the carpet, quit killing the cat. Would you, you know, I mean, our product is very dangerous in that sense because it's so fast. It has to be tamed. So we had to learn through the implementation process because you can't learn this through discovery. You learn it through implementation. What needs to be done to have the problem actually get solved without blaming the customer for their failure to do their part? That is a step after discovery and that's the hard work. And that's the one thing you might need funding for. Because implementations, unless you can figure out how to charge enough for these things, for the whole thing, you could end up underwater. Now, I believe that there are ways to avoid that. If if your product is tight enough and small enough, and then you can wrap it up in some services, there's a safe way to use services as an adjunct to a product without becoming a services company. And there's rules that are easy to follow, like don't charge for the services. Or if you do charge for the services, make sure that there's no goal associated with the services number. So don't give somebody that number. That tail will wag the dog every time. And that's that's a common uh, pratfall uh, as it is, because you see companies in the software, especially in our space, they have a great software in the tech or mark stack. Um, they love it. People enjoy it. It's a kludgy install. And then some CFO or VP of sales has the bright idea to say, wait a minute, if it's complicated, that means we can charge for it. And if we can charge for it, I can have a whole team of professional sales uh, engineers, poster, pre-sales engineers, et cetera. And I could create a high margin product line. And in in essence, it just, you keep following that uh, process, that flywheel, and it leads to more frustration from the customer, more fear from the customer side that, you know, we, we follow this false flag of the Accenture model where, you know, the implementation is never done. In, in the new world, you're saying that just the opposite should be true, is we want intuitive, simple products that fit three needs, one of them emotional, ideally, and we want them up and going. And that's how you get to market dominance is more people using the product, not fewer people using the product but you're charging more for it with not just the software, but the professional services element as well. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's fine if it turns out that there's a, something needs to happen to make the product succeed and actually solve a problem. That work needs to be done. It's fine to coordinate that work. It's fine to do that work. It's even okay to charge for that work. But if you ever give somebody that number, they'll sell that work and they'll sell every other kind of work that's close to it. The problem with services is, Service offerings have no natural boundary. Product offerings have a natural boundary. The product only does so much. I can only use this coffee cup for so many things. I can't actually ask it to drive me to the airport. Doesn't work. I could ask a person holding this coffee cup to drive me to the airport as a service. Okay, so say that person's original job was to fill the coffee cup and bring it to me and make sure that it had the right coffee in it but they're charging me for bringing me the coffee. And I could say, by the way, I'd like a ride to the airport. What's that going to cost? And they're going, well, uh, I get my commission based on how much services I charge, services revenue I bring in. Yeah, I'll give you a ride to the airport. 
And then they say, wow, that's great customer service. Well, where's the boundary? I went from serving coffee to driving people to the airport. And yeah. that's what, that is the tail that wags the dog. And the problem is those services are an essential part of filling out the rest of the product. You can't build every feature. You can't make every integration happen. So take integration services, very, very common problem. In the software world, my software must always work with other software. I can build out every possible integration in advance. My problem is I don't know whether my first customer is going to have exactly that version of that thing, you know, whatever that is, right? Their CRM or their accounting system or whatever. I don't know what that's going to be like. And even worse, I don't know how it's configured. So I may think I've done an integration with Salesforce, but have I really done an integration with Salesforce that takes into account the fact that they use contacts for leads and that they customize, customize the contact object. So some of its lead characteristics have to do with these additional fields, some of which were interpreted three years ago one way, and then we changed the interpretation and they mean something else now. That, by the way, is the standard. That is the standard for all CRMs. It's the standard for all enterprise systems. They're full of these overloads of fields that have values that used to be one way or an hour or another way, where you have to interpret it. Well, actually, if it starts with an A, what that means is, yeah. right, all of this stuff is in there. You can't integrate to a piece of technology in advance and know that the implementation of that integration out of the box is going to help solve the problem that you are trying to solve. Services will be required. The question is, do you charge for them? If you charge for integration services, which by the way, have no independent value. So one of the rules for services is if you charge for stuff that has no independent value, independent of your product, you have a real, real problem. Your problem is that that piece of the business will run away with the business and yet it has little appeal. So you'll undercharge. Now you'll end up with negative margins on your services. <laughs> right. So this happens all the time, right? So you've got to be very, very careful. Services are required. Think of it as ongoing product development cost that is not capitalized. It's expensed. Keep track of it very, very carefully and make sure it's enough to make the product work that the feedback that comes back from the services is what tells you what to build next. So the first iteration of the product is three features that are gonna solve real, real problems that somebody has a feel for. The second set of features are the ones that come back from the gaps that show up in services. We keep doing the same thing over and over. Let's productize that. Some of them are full, that some of them are platformy. They're like, we have one in our product. We call it integration architecture. We do our integrations out of a pre-wired integration to Salesforce, to Microsoft Dynamics, to whatever. And then we just have to do non-coding work. So taking coding work and turning it into non-coding work by building a platform with configuration switches in it is a way to make your product more robust without solving a new problem. You're not solving a new problem. You're solving the problem of fitting into the world that your customer lives in and doing it without ever increasing services revenue that somebody owns and they go, hey, I'm going to go sell more of them integrations. Yes, yes. You also avoid the conflict because services revenue often is charged by, by time, by the hour. So you have an inherent problem, which is the person who owns the services revenue number wants things to take a long time. And you need short cycles to actual usage of the product and delivery of results. So the longer the services, the longer the cycle time between the sale and actual realization of value. Yes. 
And that's where the fundamental risk of the business is, is that cycle time. So you increase the fundamental risk of the business in order to make some revenue that has no value for you in the long run. It's a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. I think if we were to reduce it to a recipe, the recipe is this. We need to take our don't oh, sure. close deals because you need implementations because that's the next part of the feedback. Corey, I tell you, I believe we're onto something here. And you know what the next natural thing for someone to do is, and this will be on the recording, so it's okay. Someone who wants to run a different kind of investment operation. Oh, sure. My gosh. Who simply says, look, if you have an idea, bring your idea. And instead of having the Vista style book, which is very, very late, have the early book that says, you know, this is uh, the name of the fund is, that's the 100% fund. <laughs> 100% of all the companies that we launch, it's not one of those incubator blah, blah, blahs. It's actually, it's a, a process machine in which the entrepreneur and their passion is inserted. And five weeks, six weeks later, a product pops out and that product goes and dominates its first market. Within three years, it'll be complete dominance, but its assurance of dominance happens within six to nine months. But is it a runaway math problem at that point or math solution? That's right. I, I think that I think you're onto something uh, on that as well. It's um, certainly needed today, as you said, that it's the there's ubiquity of products, but there is you know a scarcity of solid go-to-market advice. I have a plethora of Martech, ad tech, sales tech tools in my stack that I can amplify the suck. Yes. Right. As you say. But if I don't have the clean closed loop strategy feedback loop to expedite my five pivots that invariably I'm going to hit, pay me now or pay me later. I'd rather do that and front load those uh, versus back load those, which is going to cost me time. It's going to cost me people. It's going to cost me ownership. Um, and it's going to cost me uh, potential market dominance uh, issues, et cetera. So, um, and marriages. friendships it'll i mean really when you come right down to it time doesn't kill all deals time kills all companies and it kills the relationships it kills the human side frankly it's just too hard to go climb these mountains if it takes too long and people's relationships fray when they're asked to be in the lifeboat with somebody for two or three years before they figure out if there's a destination. <laughs> so I think really you come right down to it. The big issue is the human cost. We're mm. sending people to war and we're sending them to war unarmed and unprovisioned and the brave ones get through. And then we say, well, look at that. Well, it was one in 10, but you know, the one in 10 that make it as unicorns go in and examine the human relationships Examine the history of the human relationships in those companies and then ask yourself a simple question. If this had happened in one fifth the time, would these people still be friends? Would they still have intact marriages? Would their kids still know who they are? And that's really what's going on here is the innovation economy is a beast and it chews up human beings in a way that is, is not good. It's not good. It's absolutely necessary. It's the current war. If we don't fight the war for innovation, we have issues, really big issues. So somebody's got to go out there and do that, that hard work, but we don't have to do it in a way that destroys people's lives.
This is my entrepreneurial passion. This is why I'm doing Connect and Sell. Helping investors make money, that's not that interesting to me. I've been in, in the startup world. I've been in the startup world since 1984. That's a long time. I've done sincere startups one after another. They take too long. They hurt too many people. Yeah, they sound glorious and all, but if you really go in, you really dig in and say, realistically, what happens? What happens is human beings get chewed up in a machine made out of ignorance. We attempt to solve the ignorance through the application of money. And the money poisons the relationships and it actually poisons the companies themselves. So this is a way of getting the innovation economy to work in a fundamentally different way by dispelling the ignorance mm -hmm. and reducing the amount of time you need to spend in the lifeboat together and making it much more like something that we know how to do. We should know how to do innovation. And the bottleneck of innovation is go to market, not invention. This was beyond delightful and exceeded expectations. And my expectations were pretty darn high. Oh, no, it's you have so much rattling in that in that brain of yours, right? It's just to do it. If I could do a matrix and just plug it in, right, and fly a helicopter out of, you know, what's in your head or learn kung fu or whatever it is in Beal's brain, that's uh, that's great. So, you know, forget inside John Malkovich. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm now fascinated by an idea that I hadn't really thought of before that you and I might be able to work on, which is you might know some people who are open-minded enough to make a new kind of investment fund. Oh, uh, Ori, well, my, by my buddy Ori Eisen, who did, we did 41st Parameter, he's on Trusana right now. So he's good buddies with Mort Meyerson, who is, uh, you know, a very um, keen, savvy investor with this type of humanistic approach. Absolutely, I think that's something that we should, uh, we should talk about it. Beyond Incubator and it's beyond VC, it's, it's uh, something from the heart. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. You've been listening to another episode of the Market Dominance Guys radio show sponsored by Connect and Sell on the Funnel radio channel.